So yes, uh, I have taken the remit I was kindly given today when I was invited, and, and thanks to the organizers very much for inviting me, of reflecting on the experience of being a historian working with policy quite literally. So what I'm going to tell you about today is my experience working with the WHO, um, and in particular speaking to an audience that was comprised of international health workers, um, leaders of uh, governmental, national government, um, response teams to migration, and then some groups of migrant health activists um, at the Refugee and Migration Summer School a couple of years ago. And the sort of reasons why and the ways in which I found history to be quite a useful platform from which to intervene in these debates. And as my talk probably indicates, one of the big problems I see is that nations, and in particular national civil services, no longer have institutional memory. Um, and that means that they're not able to reflect on their own existing experiences, that uh, for a century and a half we've been experiencing mass migration, and governments have been responding to mass migration, and public health authorities and national health services have been responding to mass migration, and yet the vast wealth of experience and knowledge and evidence that has emerged from all of these responses, particularly in the post-war period, have essentially been lost uh, over the course of a series of endless institutional reorganizations and the churn of civil service. Now, this may be a particular problem on Whitehall here in the UK, but I think it's noticeable also in the US state and in uh, large portions of European states, particularly in Southern Europe, which is really addressing the current version of the migration problem. So, how do we get people to see the evidence that's there? How do we invite them to reflect on it? And how can we support the people who are at the business end of managing and responding to migrant needs uh, in actually doing that in ways that are not going to endlessly reinvent destructive cycles with which we as historians are extremely familiar? So there's a fundamental problem with migrant health provision. And that's the case here in the UK, where health services are free at the point of need. And it's the case in countries where those services are not free at the point of need as well, which is that even if it is supposedly completely seamless and entirely free, free isn't sufficient. After offering people free health care doesn't give them the same health outcomes as the host population. It doesn't give them the same points of access as the host population. And in fact, it's politically, it's structurally, and it's culturally extremely challenging for a wide array of reasons that I think many people in this room will already be aware of, that accessing the vast bureaucracy that sits underneath free is, is challenging. It's hard to believe in free. As an American coming to the UK, I didn't believe in free when I first got here, and I was a highly privileged legal migrant. Um, and so when you get down to the end of populations who are being treated as unwelcome, who are being treated as victims, who are being uh, isolated in a whole array of structural and cultural fashions, the idea that you simply need to point out that there's healthcare over there someplace and let them go to it is going to produce a good health outcome is, is obviously institutional madness. But it's not new. Right? This is not new. In 70 years, we've had a constant sequence of 
migration crises since World War II, starting with displaced persons, the Hungarian refugee crisis, the various crises that surrounded decolonization. We have a whole array of current uh, crises happening. And in fact, the processes are remarkably similar. Even the context is not as different as perhaps the general public and some policymakers may, may think. And this means that we have this extraordinary range of very well-documented responses to the experiences that both migrating and hosting populations have had, both of migration uh, arrivals and journeys in general, and of those portions of those journeys that are specifically related to health. Now, what I find particularly galling as a researcher is that actually there's also a very large volume of peer-reviewed research that's available with five minutes on Google um, to anyone who might, I don't know, want to use evidence in policy. Right? So you ask yourself, what's going wrong here? Why is this not happening? And part of the answer is even some people don't have five minutes for Google. Hard to believe. Um, but when you look at the problem that those five minutes and perhaps a bit of helpful support might, uh, might solve, you see a host of failed interventions that are being repeated again and again and again. Ideas about education-only responses, ideas about assimilationist responses, ideas about migrants and positioning them as health dangers, as pathological or pathogenic. These things don't work. Not only do they not work, they're actively destructive to the outcome that states and general publics and populations and migrants all want to gain. And perhaps even worse, successes aren't repeated either. So we've had success. There are a host of different small-scale interventions across probably every migrant receiving nation that have been wildly successful that have been effective, that have created communities, that have built stronger health systems, that have made wonderful resource uh, use of the populations who have migrated themselves. So the image I'm showing is of a Vietnamese public health worker, in fact, the chief public health officer of Saigon, who's caught up in one of the, the Vietnamese exoduses after um, the US leaves Vietnam. And he's immediately recruited in to provide cultural expertise, but also simple facilitating medical support in a refugee camp. And this is incredibly effective. And yet we still see the case that migrant doctors who are traveling as migrants, as refugees, are very underused. That resource is not drawn upon. And in fact, it's often actively rejected as a way of solving or at least addressing migrant health problems that are familiar to us all. Language problems, cultural barriers, differences in prescription regimes, differences in the practices of providing medical advice, etc., that I think will be familiar to anyone who's worked with migrant or minority ethnic groups, uh, recent descendants of migrants. So where does history come into this? Well, what I found when I was talking to this very mixed group of uh, people involved in addressing the health problems of migrant groups in the current migrant crisis um, uh, in the Mediterranean was that they were a little suspicious. They were a little uncertain about what a historian had to tell them about something that to them was so new and so uh, intensely urgent and so contemporary. 
And so this is where I found case studies to be enormously useful. And I'm actually not going to tell you this whole case study, um, although I do have, have it all documented for questions afterwards. But what I want to draw attention to is how similar the context is. We may think that the contemporary context, an economic uh, crisis, crisis migration triggered by, uh, by war and by poverty and by uh, enormous social disruption during a global recession, we may think of that as novel or at least as unusual or specific to this moment. But it's, it's obviously not. And so drawing back on the case of uh, migration from, of, of African Asians during the Africanizations of the 1960s and then during the subsequent economic crisis of the 1970s, in fact, it's a, it's a redo. We're just repeating that again. Um, so in 1961 to 1962, the UK, as we're probably all familiar, switches to a regime of migration control that is restrictive towards British subjects, Commonwealth migrants. In order to beat this ban that everyone sees coming, as it is widely signaled politically, we have a mass migration from uh, Commonwealth nations uh, and former and current colonies to the UK. This produces uh, a spike in migration figures and the sort of typical moral panic that you might expect. In 1968, we have the Kenyan-Asian crisis as Africanization leads to the rights of Kenyan Asians being stripped away and they immediately turn to the rights they have remaining through a quirk of British immigration law to use their passports to come to the UK. And in 1972 and 1973, we have the Ugandan-Asian crisis. All three of these were handled, you know, very cack-handedly by the British government, which is not going to surprise anyone. Governments don't do well with mass migration. But all three of them produced certain rather predictable effects. There's enormous local sympathy. And we don't hear this story as much as we could, but if you start looking into local council records, local newspaper reports, we see people responding to what are tragic situations with the kind of sympathy that we've seen, for example, in Sicily, um, but also with concern and fear and hostility, which, of course, we have also seen across the southern border of Europe. We see political debate, and this is going to be fairly familiar from the beginnings of that debate in 1961, where it coincides with a smallpox outbreak that has been imported from Pakistan to the Powellite uh, racist revolution, so to speak of the late 1960s and early 1970s. And we also see that, as it was said at the time, migrants arriving acted as, and this is a quotation from a debate in the House of Lords, a radioactive isotope to display the problems with the current system. And this was a discussion specifically of how the NHS managed disease and managed public health. So the idea, and I think it's quite an accurate one, that mass migration and the arrival of new populations with both similar and novel health needs exposes the cracks in the system that already exists. What's important to remember, though, is that those cracks exist for the local population as well. So they're not exposing something novel. They're not the new problem. They just shed new light on existing problems. And the first response, both in the 1960s and often in the present, is to encourage migrants to assimilate with the local culture, the local institutional structures, and 
to therefore become healthy by default, be like us. Um, and this is certainly the case in relation to the return of rickets with Asian populations in the 1960s and the 1970s. The next response beyond, oh, this will sort itself out as they you know, seamlessly assimilate into the NHS because after all it's free, is blaming cultural difference, saying, well, it's not because there's something wrong here in the UK, it's because you know, their dietary habits and their social customs are just wrong. They're wrong. They need to fix it. Um, and this will happen eventually. And these assimilationist responses, of course, are very, very familiar to us all from the contemporary situation. And at this point, my audience amongst the public health workers were like, yeah, actually. And it's familiar. You know, this kind of case study is familiar because it is very much like what people are experiencing. And these are battles that many of the public health workers are fighting on the ground. How do we argue against this? And so history provides something that we can recognize. And yet, of course, for them at least, the outcome is not yet known. The story continues. The suspense ideally builds. Um, and so I'm able to show them evidence of what has happened and what failed. And these images, they might look a bit primitive and simplistic to our health educators now, but the content is still very familiar. Be like us, these images say. If you do the things we do, then you'll be as healthy as we are. Um, use the system that's already in place. Now in the UK and in relation to rickets, the system that was already in place was fortified margarine. I don't know about you guys, but margarine is not that appealing. And fortified margarine is stigmatized even in Britain as a food for poor people until the late 70s when it becomes a sort of, it's rebranded as a health food. Actual migrants, of course, identify very different factors in the reasons behind Asian rickets as a problem. And they talk about racial violence, and they talk about dangerous environments, and they talk about the lack of facilities that are available to them, and lack of knowledge of the systems that ought to be there to support their health. So very different stories once you begin to talk to the migrants themselves. And here again, my health workers and my my uh, public health policy people were, were nodding and they were engaging with this process. Again, it's familiar. You get different stories when you begin to look at this from a different perspective. And in the case of Asian, Asian rickets, this rise of new perspectives leads to a new health intervention. And in part, this is due to the wonderful wealth of the NHS in Asian medical professionals who are able to bring this perspective forward. Again, this is something that I wanted to emphasize and that I feel was well heard by the audience of policy workers I was speaking to, that trained professionals in the migrating population are an incredible resource for solving the problems that exist. This new solution that they come up with in the 1980s is community consultation. And we see the Stop Ricketts campaign of 1982. It has some really important features and features that I wanted to draw attention to as, um, as being a part of its success, such as that success was. And part of that was that it had really high level ministerial buy-in. That was important. It was important to the communities on the ground because it made them feel important. It made them feel valued, that this was something that was proof of the rhetoric they were being told that their health was important for its own sake not just because they were a danger to others. There was direct consultation with community members. Now, the fact that they were all male and they were all elites 
is a constant problem. The campaign was led not by medical authorities, but by members of an NGO who were both from that community and very well known for their existing work in uh, the host communities um, and ho uh, sending nations. And they engaged local populations not just in being invited to the events, but in actually choosing to sponsor them and to select which kinds of events were suitable for their population and their area. These are all strongly beneficial features. Now, they produce quite positive responses, which I won't go into because I know I'm already practically over time. They also, I know I always do that. They also produce a set of outcomes that were measurable and that were measured. And this was the final piece of the puzzle for working with this particular WHO audience. Now, I was preaching to the choir. I was preaching to people who really wanted to solve the problems they had on the ground. And that's not the toughest audience. Party politicians, a lot shorter concentration spans, a lot less interest in finding perhaps a different solution than the one they were looking for. But you get a short-term spike in diagnoses, you get increased community and professional awareness of rickets as measured a year later. The long-term benefits were actually more important and longer-lived. Um, it reshaped expectations in that community, both about the importance of cultural awareness for their physicians and about their importance in producing and driving uh, felt need that they had a right to say what their communities needed and that that was actually going to produce benefits on the ground. It presented migrants as an asset in health education and acknowledged that the National Health Service, in this case, was not transparent to people who had just entered the country. Um, and finally, it incorporated migrants into the public. They were members of the public of public health. And this is something that simply doesn't happen except in relation to uh, public health epidemiology. So, a case study offered me a chance to engage with workers with the problems they had, but to show them an outcome that had already happened and the ways it could be assessed. Thank you.